Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And today we're talking about Taylor Swift, who might seem like an unlikely subject for Stuff Mom Never Told You. So to begin, Caroline, I first wanted to pick your brain as to why T-Swizzle? Yeah, well... My, my boyfriend, actually, not to sound like I'm just talking about my boyfriend. Randomly. Oh, you can <laughs> talk <Thanks>. about him. <laughs> well, it's real cute. No, uh, my my boyfriend works uh, in the music industry and had made a couple comments to me recently about liking Taylor Swift, appreciating her or even admiring the way she does business and the way she interacts with her fans and. I sort of shrugged off the comments because he's not the type to, he doesn't actually listen to Taylor Swift. I'll just put it that way. Um, he, you know, has other musical preferences. So I, I just thought it was interesting, like, okay, what, what is to like about this girl? Because I have never listened to Taylor Swift's music in any sort of regular devoted way. And so I just had this impression of her as like, uh, you know, pop princess or a little country princess who's more celebrity than musician because, you know, she's in all the magazines, on all the blogs, you know, everybody's tracking her whole dating life and everything like that. And I just sort of had this stereotype of of like, well, how how could she be a serious businesswoman or serious musician or artist of any kind. But the more that I started talking to my boyfriend about it, especially in the wake of her decision to yank all of her stuff off of Spotify, uh, the more I came to realize, like, there's definitely something there to talk about because she kind of, I don't know if she's breaking any molds in the music industry, but she's certainly making her own. And also considering the fact that she's still so young, she's 25 and has put out now five studio albums. So she's been doing this for a long time and Mm -hmm. she's so clearly good at it. And I think it's also worth talking about, not just in the sense of this young music mogul, but also to her cultural influence, particularly to her younger fans, Mm -hmm. because she has made lots of headlines regarding her personal stance on feminism. Right. And the whole celebrity feminism thing can be tiresome and sometimes, I think, distract us away from more, uh, arguably more important things to talk about. But... As we'll get into, I mean, it's the same kind of thing when we were talking about Beyonce. You can't just disregard or marginalize the impact of her influence on so many girls in particular. Well, the Swifties in particular. The Swifties are diehard fans. Yeah. So why don't we kick off with better understanding who Taylor Swift is outside of tabloid headlines and music videos. Yeah, she definitely has uh, an interesting backstory. And I just say interesting because she, her family definitely had the resources to help her get into the music industry to the degree that she is now. Uh, so she was born in 1989. And I say that because her latest album is called 1989 uh, in Pennsylvania. And it's reported everywhere that she grew up on a Christmas tree farm, but her family, they're not farmers. Her father, who is a stockbroker, actually purchased the farm 
from one of his clients. Um, but yeah, both of her parents work in finance and are super involved and supportive of her career. And back in the day, they actually agreed to move to Nashville from Pennsylvania so that Taylor could pursue her music career. And now they're part owners of her label. Yeah, so it, it definitely isn't one of those like up from the by your own bootstraps kinds of stories. But I don't think that that should mitigate her talent because she was scouted early and was one of the youngest, if not the youngest person to get a songwriting development deal when she was still in her teens uh, with a big label, the specific one I'm forgetting at the moment. Um, so clearly... She was very good at what she did mm-hmm. and had a knack early on. And she talked about how in middle school, especially, she was super awkward, but she really found a lot of refuge in songwriting. And it was like the thing that she looked forward to every day. Well, right. And the whole thing about her awkwardness in middle school, I mean, who's not awkward in middle school, to be honest, but... She talked about how back home in Pennsylvania, it was sort of a mean girl situation and that everybody was like, oh, you think you're hot stuff because you sing uh, the national anthem at a game or something. Whereas when she moved to Nashville, all of a sudden she's sort of in that culture where it's probably not too hard to encounter either singers or the children of singers. And so people that are new school were like, oh, you sing? That's cool. Do you want to be in the talent show? Yeah. And I think it's too, she like parlays that awkward phase, obviously into her music videos in particular, and probably as part of her appeal to younger girls going through that awkward phase too. Yeah. But I don't want to get ahead of myself because next up, we just need to highlight just how mind-blowingly successful she's been. I mean, you mentioned that your boyfriend appreciates her role in the music industry because, I mean, it's clear that she has been instrumental in keeping it alive in a lot of ways. Yeah, she basically saved it back in 20, way back in 2014, a couple days ago. Um, so her latest album, which is 1989, like we said, was really, it, it signaled a major departure from her past as being this, this country darling. Um, I mean, she'd always been pretty poppy, uh, but this was her concerted effort to go pop and, the album was the first to go platinum in 2014. It sold nearly 1.3 million copies in its first week of U.S. release, making up 22% of all U.S. album sales at the time. It's, it was the most successful record debut since Eminem's 2002 release of The Eminem Show. So thank God Taylor Swift came along and, and uh, showed up. Eminem. Um, but, and also just to highlight how much fans were anticipating this album, because of course there was a whole PR lead up to it to stoke fans, uh, desires to get 1989, the first pop album by Taylor Swift in Canada on iTunes by accident. There was, it was something like eight seconds of static, not actual music that was released. And it still hit number one <laughs> just because they were like, this is a Taylor Swift something or other. It's Taylor Swift static. And so they bought it <laughs> and oops, it's just static, but it still raced up the charts. Yeah. All right. If you can even sell static. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, and if we look more at why and how Taylor Swift essentially blew up the music industry in 2014, according to Nielsen, more than half of the sales of 1989 were physical copies versus digital. And this is according to the Seattle Times. And that's that's a big deal because. How many people, yourself included, like how many people do you know buying tons of albums anymore? 
a lot of it is just either a digital download that's legit because you're buying it off of something like iTunes or you're streaming it on Spotify or maybe you're just plain stealing it off of you know, some website somewhere. Well, and especially for younger fans, like I would be quicker to buy a CD for my dad yeah. than for my niece. Right. It would be like, what is this? Well, how do I What is this it? shiny thing you're giving me, Aunt Kristen? Right. Well, so if we look at the numbers, according to the Recording Industry Association of America, they reported that the sales of CDs for the first half of 2014 were down 19% from the year before to 56 million. If you compare that to 2002, total album sales in the U.S. were at 681 million. And we'll, we'll definitely get into more of the whole issue around hard copy versus digital downloads as it applies to Taylor Swift specifically in just a minute. Yeah. And 1989 performed so well, obviously. Uh, it debuted at number one on the Billboard 200, making T-Swizzle the first and only act to have three albums sell more than one million copies in a week. Not bad. Not bad for 25. Certainly not. And I mean, this is definitely building off of previous success because before that, before 1989 came out, she was the only female artist and the fourth artist ever to twice have an album sell a million copies in its first week. And that's 2012's Red and 2010's Speak Now. And for a few more accolades, she's won seven Grammys as of this recording. (laughs) She's also the youngest person to ever win Album of the Year, which she won in 2009 for Fearless which was notably the first album that she wrote solo. And in terms of overall sales, she sold more than 26 million albums and 75 million song downloads worldwide. She's a global brand. And I remember there was a, I think this was mentioned in a 2011 New Yorker profile of her, how at the time they were, her record label, Big Machine, was preparing for like they were thinking the next step would be Australia because she had like done really well in Asia. And they're like, okay, well, we've got the Asian market. Next up is Australia, which was apparently a big deal. And of course she nailed it. Yeah. And she was the first female artist since Madonna to successfully tour and sell out stadiums there. Yeah. And back back, I think I was, yeah, back in 2011 in that New Yorker piece, uh, they cited Forbes as ranking her as the year's seventh biggest earning celebrity with an annual income of, you know, just a paltry $45 million, which includes not only her music stuff, but also all of her product endorsements and what, what is so, and I, I say this genuinely, so please don't get mad at me, but what is so adorable about Taylor Swift's product endorsements is that she's very clear about how, like, she will not endorse something if she herself does not like it and or grew up wanting to be in an ad for it. Like CoverGirl, who sponsored her, I think, most recent tour, um, she is a cover girl and told the interviewer, like, no, 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 I've always been excited about this. Like, this is awesome. And so that is part of the T-Swift brand about being not only awkward and a little gawky or whatever, but being adorably genuine. Yeah. And whether or not that is partially artifice, to me, it doesn't really matter because... It's all part of how savvy of a businesswoman she is at this point. I mean, the fact that this 5'10", model-esque, 25-year-old can still be described adoringly as a little bit awkward and gawky, which is like, no, <laughs> God, she, have you seen her? She's not awkward at all. Yeah. Um, it, 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 she's just done such a 
such an incredible job building and maintaining her brand in the same in, in a similar vein as Beyonce. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or a similar way as as Sminty. Yes, <laughs> yes. We do like to think of ourselves as the the Taylor Swift. <laughs> Of the podcast world. Perfect. Um, but yeah, so the whole thing about her recent success with 1989, um, is that it has been super reaffirming for her. This is coming from an article in Time Magazine, which I think was titled The Power of Taylor Swift. Um, she was talking about how every single element of the album was called into question and she had to say, no, this is how we're doing it. I mean, I love that coming from not only a woman, but a very young woman putting her foot down to all of these record label execs. And she says, the fact that we came out and did the kind of numbers we did in the first week, you have no idea how relieved I was because it was all on me if this didn't work. And to give you an idea of the things that she was pushing back against, I mean, execs were concerned about the title. Do you really want to call it 1989? The cover image. Do you really want to feature a picture of yourself when it's not your full face? It's just like half of you. And she definitely had to fight back against a lot of people, her label head in particular, regarding her departure from country music. They were like, all right, well, if you're going to go pop, can you at least get three country songs on the record? And she's like, no, this is my this is my thing. I'm doing this. Well, and notable, too, that not only did she decide to do this as a full on pop record, but she also moved out of Nashville. I mean, she still has her place in Nashville, but she also bought an apartment in New York City. Mm-hmm. Um, but one thing that jumped out to me in the Time Magazine interview was her bristling a little bit when the interviewer brought up Spotify and her decision and Big Machine's decision to pull all of her music from the streaming service because she was basically like, why are you asking me about this? I wrote an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal. This isn't news anymore. This yeah. is my decision. However... Her decision to pull her music from Spotify is certainly still having ripple effects in terms of the music industry, which obviously is evolving more and more towards digital. Right. And so for perspective, she's honestly just one of a few musicians who have taken their music off of Spotify and streaming services like that. But, you know, we talked a little bit about. Uh, album sales in the music industry earlier, but let's give you a little more perspective around this issue. So as sales of physical, actual, concrete, hard copy albums and digital downloads decline, revenue from streaming services like Pandora, like Spotify, rose 28% in the first half of 2014. This is great, right? Well, except for the fact that artists end up getting paid just a fraction of a penny each time a song is streamed. Granted, if you're somebody incredible like a Taylor Swift, like a Beyonce, you're still going to make a ton of money. It's the little guys who really suffer. So for a little more Taylor Swift specific perspective, the Seattle Times talked to industry analyst Alice Enders, who said that for a digital download, not streaming on Spotify, but like literally purchasing it from iTunes for a digital digital download. Taylor will probably take home 50 percent of retail. That's 50 or 60 cents, which is a lot compared to Spotify's fraction of a penny. And there was some news recently giving some more detail about the whole Spotify deal. And the CEO of Spotify was none too pleased. Not only that Taylor Swift withdrew her music from his service, but that she's been so public about it as to write that Wall Street Journal op-ed. And he was basically saying that, hey, Taylor was on track to make more than $6 million this year. 
which was countered by the head of Swift's label, Scott Borchetta, who says, well, it's actually more like 500,000, which is kind of a big deal. But so when you look at album sales in general, sales are down so much that before Taylor Swift's 1989 came along, 2014 was set to be the first year in decades, decades, when no album was going to be certified platinum. And so the fact that she's been able to do this after having taken her stuff off streaming, I think is a pretty incredible achievement. And I think it says a lot about her fans, too. Yeah, I mean, and the motivation for pulling this stuff off Spotify, obviously they're economic reasons, but her whole thing too was this valid argument that my music has value. It should mm-hmm. have inherent value and I'm not comfortable putting it out there and sort of devaluing it by just going ahead and agreeing to leave it on Spotify. And so she talked all about this in the op-ed she wrote for in July of 2014 for the Wall Street Journal, which, of course, went viral because everyone was like, oh, my gosh, Taylor Swift is in the Wall Street Journal. How kooky. Um, But she talked about how, quote, the music industry is not dying. It's just coming alive. And it was a very hyper optimistic portrayal of the music industry, basically saying, like, art should be respected and valued and if you, you know, it's all about you have to understand how to wield social media and cultivate your fan following. But at the same time, like we can't just give our music away for free. And there are great arguments sort of in a vacuum that she makes. But at the same time, it's an easy argument for Taylor Swift to make. You know, it's a very sunny assessment of things are just coming alive. Of course, they are. you're 25 and you are like selling as many records as the Beatles did. This is crazy. But one thing the Beatles did not do was directly communicate with their legions of Beatlemaniac fans. And Taylor definitely makes it a point to not only talk about how she's on social media, but to really genuinely be there and tweet back to her fans, talk to them on Tumblr, laugh at herself when people post memes about her and things like that. And she's always done it. In one interview, she talked about how back in 2005, she told the folks at her record label that she was commuting, communicating with fans on MySpace, and it just blew their minds. And partially because she had the advantage of growing up on the Internet. Yeah. You know, she's a little bit younger than we did, so she, I mean, obviously we were both on MySpace, but for her, you know, MySpace was an even more integral part of her life. And she was savvy at spotting the business opportunity of that. I mean, she even talked about this in the Wall Street Journal about how today you almost develop your online following and then the product will follow that your online following has as much, if not more currency than your actual art as she refers to her music. Yeah. And it's it's you know, there there is a question about a lot of celebrities about whether they are how invested they are in connecting with their fans and is it really them behind the curtain? And I think Taylor has really set herself apart by making it clear that, yeah, this is me and I think it's really cool that you send me pictures and stuff like that. And 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 Vulture wrote about this too as far as her everything from her internet presence to her liner notes and her albums are a way to reach out to her fans. And they said that it's all one very savvy project to encourage devotion and relatability. And another part of that is the fact that 
on all of her social media, she is posting some really incredible pictures of some really incredible real life friends, too. Yeah, it's well known that she has just a bevy of attractive, super famous gal pals, for lack of a better word. I hate that I just said gal pals in the podcast, so apologies to the <laughs> listeners. But, you know, people like model Carly Kloss, Lena Dunham, who famously introduced her by example to feminism, and also feminist musician Lord, who initially said some not so nice things about Taylor Swift in the media, sort of labeling her as, you know, sort of a vapid boy crazy pop princess who has since come around and now they're friends and they, you know, always tweet to each other and uh, take selfies together and, you know, make their Instagrams just so jealousy provoking. Um, But there was this great quote about this in Vulture saying, quote, Performative female friendship is as old as a high school yearbook, and celebrities have always been friends with with each other. But social media lends an easy way to perform that practical BFF requirement, the shout-out. And it's just interesting to see how she, in particular, far beyond like a lot of other celebrities at her level, have used social media for that. Yeah, because I, I don't doubt that she is friends with these women and that regardless of, you know, whether she's famous, she would be posting pictures of herself and her friends. It just so happens that she's incredibly famous. Her friends are incredibly famous. They're very photogenic. And taking these pictures, posting these pictures and things like that allows people access into her life in a way that they don't get if they're just reading tabloids or just reading gossip blogs. That's more of like a, hey, I'm posting pictures of my friends, and it's almost like you're my friends, too, looking at these pictures. Well, at least gives them the sense that they're on the inside. Right, right, which is exactly. To it. And that's definitely part of crafting a very specific image. And we're going to talk more about that image when we come right back from a quick break. And now, back to the show. So in the first half of the podcast, we really talked about Taylor Swift, the businesswoman, kind of to establish that she's a lot more than just a pop princess, as a lot of people just think that she is. Mm -hmm. No, she has a lot of ownership over her career and over her image. And I want to talk a lot about her image because I think this, this also gets at why we wanted to talk about her on the podcast, because yes, mm-hmm. clearly an example of a savvy, smart, successful young woman in the music business, but it's her image that gets people talking so much. Right, exactly. And so when she was interviewed by Time Magazine, she talked a lot about sort of the motivation behind why she does things. She's often called the anti-Lohan because she's not one of those young child stars who has either uh, made the turn into like sexy music like Britney Spears. And I, I only say that because I know that sounds ridiculous, but she did have a quote about like, I don't feel like I need to go dark like Britney Spears did to prove that now I'm a grown up. Um, she definitely maintains this image of being the prim statuesque young woman who wears a lot of anthropology and other vintage clothes and things like that. But she's got a goofy side. But she definitely has a goofy side. And so she was telling Time Magazine that she would rather live her life based on what her grandkids will say one day rather than necessarily worrying about what the media says about her or what social critics say about her. She says, I think more about the people in my life that would 
be disappointed. My mom, my dad, my kids, if I ever have them. And she says, and that's why it's not as much pressure as thinking about the millions of little minds that you must be shaping because everybody also calls Taylor Swift a role model because she isn't the one being photographed out of the club, falling out of a limo, being wasted, all that stuff. And oh, while- Lindsay. This makes me so sad for Lindsay Lowen. Or Lindsay Lowen and Brittany. Um, but again, I mean, you know, she she accepts that role model mantle that people put on her as opposed to I feel like a lot of celebrities out there who when people shake their finger at them and say, you shouldn't be acting like this because you're a role model to young girls. A lot of young women who are celebrities say, well, I don't want it. I never wanted it. I'm just living my life. And while that's true, everyone should have a right to live their own life and get drunk in a limo if they want. I mean, who hasn't wanted to get drunk in a limo? Um, there is something very interesting about this. The fact that Taylor Swift is so super conscious of being a role model, wanting to be a role model and definitely making an effort to play the part. Well, because it's an interesting dichotomy, too, because clearly a lot of what fuels her music and her fandom is her dating life, mm-hmm. even though right now she's kind of sworn off guys, hence all the selfies with all of her lady BFFs. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there's that whole angle that leaves fans, you know, digging through her liner notes, trying to find clues as to whether that is about John Mayer or whether that is about Harry Styles, who she's actually singing about. But at the same time, she's very conscious, like outwardly, of like she has no interest in being overtly sexy. Right. Like, and if you watch her videos, it's so clear. I mean, she's gorgeous and she's very well dressed and she has, a, I think I've already described her once in this podcast, a statuesque. And she is. But it's not, I mean, it just stands so much in contrast, for instance, to Katy Perry or Nicki Minaj. Although I feel like Nicki Minaj and Taylor Swift, that just gets into apples and oranges. And I mean, the whole crafting of the image using social media, Vanity Fair called it actually a rather brilliant marketing move. They say that it doesn't mean it was conscious. She is, after all, a product of this Internet era But it is a very conscious decision to craft her own image in whatever way she can. And social media is a big part of that. I mean, you know, that's why people warn you, like, oh, don't put anything on the Internet. You don't want people to see because it's all part of what you project to the outside world. And Taylor is super conscious of that. Yeah, there was I believe it was in uh, Rolling Stone uh, profile of her, which talked about her paranoia. She was just like, I whenever she goes into a dressing room for the first time, she has, I'm sure someone else (laughs) check for cameras because, you know, it's something like things that we would take for granted that just absolutely cannot happen. Right. Well, I mean, also the whole thing about like, she also checks for mics. She's worried about people being bugged and wired and and taping any sort of performance or, or video shoot or anything like that. And she even had one interviewer, listen to a preview of her album on earbuds like she wouldn't play it for her out in the open yeah um but speaking of listening to a new song being a songwriter is also front and center as part of that image for instance in 2010 it was a huge deal that she wrote all the songs to her album speak now by herself i mean people were saying this is unheard heard of for an artist to do that. And there are also skeptics who say she's not writing this by herself. There's no way. But I mean, she stands by that. And a lot of people who she writes with 
stand by it as well. Like we might, I might come in and sort of bounce. She might bounce ideas off of me, but she's writing everything. These are her songs. Yeah. Well, and, and she's a songwriter to the point where in October 2013, uh, Nashville, the Nashville Songwriters Association International honored her for a record sixth time as Songwriter Artist of the Year, surpassing veterans like Vince Gill and Alan Jackson. And though now, though, that she's made this pop transformation, she is working with more pop-leaning songwriting partners like the very big deal, Max Martin. He works with a ton of artists. But Liz Rose, who's a, also a big deal songwriter in Nashville and a, is a former collaborator with Swift, says basically what Kristen just said, that it's it's not that Taylor's not writing just because she's collaborating with people, which, by the way, I mean, you'd be hard pressed to find any musician who doesn't collaborate in some way with someone on songwriting or arrangement. But anyway, Liz Rose said that my strength with Taylor isn't writing lyrics. It's whittling things down and pulling out the important pieces. She says the writers that did try to mess with her lyrics, she didn't write with them a second time. Yeah, I wouldn't want to cross Taylor Swift. She, a girl knows what she wants. <laughs> yeah. Um, and her attitude toward writing song lyrics is, I mean, it's, it's really basic in a way. She just, she told Time Magazine, for instance, I've been able to write songs and feel better. They clarify and simplify the emotions that you're feeling. And it's the, that emotive quality to her songs and the fact that a lot of the subject matter does deal in dating and romance and crushes and all of that, that her critics try to write her off. Mm-hmm. But Tommy Gevinson, who is the brainchild genius behind Rookie Magazine and other incredible things, uh, wrote about this in Believer Magazine, basically saying, no, 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 that is exactly why she's so good. She said essentially that she has a gift for taking what might seem like a mundane kind of thing, like having a crush on a boy, and actually pulling out and writing those emotions to make it sound as big as it felt. Yeah. Even though we might want to disregard those kinds of instances, it's still, I mean, it's still a gift to be able to capture that and clearly capture it in a way that resonates with so many younger girls in particular. Yeah. And I mean, that's why I like what she said to Vanity Fair. And and I think this is part of seeing her <laughs> coming of age, not to sound like I'm this crotchety old woman who's like, look at this young girl coming of age. But that's what I like so much about Taylor Swift's quote in Vanity Fair about songwriting and writing lyrics and having people judge you so harshly for being female and writing about your emotions. She says that for people who portray women like her as clingy or insane or desperate because of the way she writes about relationships and love and things like that, she said, I think that's taking something that potentially should be celebrated, a woman writing about her feelings in a confessional way, and turning it and twisting it into something that is frankly... A little sexist. And in the same vein, she also calls out people who criticize her and claim that she doesn't write all of her songs or that she has a ghost writer or she has a whole team of people pulling the strings behind her. She actually said, we all know that this is a feminist issue. And of course, when I read that as the first sentence of that paragraph, I was like, what? (laughs) 
Do we, Taylor? What do you mean? Well, don't worry. She continued. She talked about how nobody questions her male singer songwriter friends about whether they write everything. And she said, you know, in the beginning, I thought we were all in the same playing field. And then it became pretty obvious to me that when you have people sort of questioning the validity of a female songwriter or making it seem like it's somehow unacceptable to write songs about your real emotions, that it somehow makes you irrational and over-emotional, seeing that over the years changed my view. And she talks about how she takes up the cause for Nicki Minaj and Iggy Azalea saying that why do they have to prove that they write their own lyrics when men in the same type of uh, genre don't necessarily have to justify that? Yeah. And along similar lines in terms of people wanting to dismiss her music as, oh, well, it's just, you know, drivel about boys and heartache. She was talking to The Guardian saying, I really resent the idea that if a woman writes about her feelings, she has too many feelings. And I really resent the be careful, buddy. She's going to write a song about you angle because it trivializes what I do, which kind of echoes her Spotify decision as well. She said, quote, it makes it seem like creating art is something you do as a cheap weapon rather than an artistic process. And yes, does her artistic process often involve writing highly autobiographical songs about either past crushes or relationships or just people who have done her wrong? Yes, but she clearly does it very well and she's been very successful at it. Is there room for critiquing some of her lyrics, particularly in earlier albums? Yes, there have been times when I'm going to botch the actual lyric, but there have been have there been times when she has perhaps thrown shade at characters in her songs, whether they are real or fictional for perhaps having premarital sex or maybe making riskier in quotes decisions than her character in the song would make. Yeah, she has. But it seems like she has evolved from that in the same way that her public stance on feminism has evolved to the point that, you know, like she was talking to time. We all know this is a feminist issue being that direct about it. Yeah. I mean, she admits she wasn't so sure about the feminism thing at first, which Everybody remembers, because that is also why when my boyfriend was like, hey, you know, Taylor Swift is pretty savvy. I was like, (laughs) yeah, whatever. She won't even admit to being a feminist. She doesn't even know what feminism is. She doesn't define it correctly, which I mean, full disclosure, I posted her quote that launched a thousand blogs about feminism on the stuff I'm never told you Facebook page with a probably snarky comment of, oh, here we go again, because she said Back in the day, and back in the day, by the way, folks, is only like three years, but still a lifetime for this woman's career because so much has happened. She said, quote, I don't really think about things as guys versus girls. I never have. I was raised by parents who brought me up to think if you work as hard as guys, you can go far in life. And that was in response to someone asking whether she was a feminist. And everyone was like, no, but you are. And now, of course... Largely, she said, due to Lena Dunham's influence, she's like, oh, yeah, no, 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 I totally am a feminist. I just didn't get it. Yeah, she says that kind of watching the way that Lena Dunham operates and lives her life made her realize that she's been taking a feminist stance this whole time without actually saying so. And I mean, that's what was so fascinating about that. Uh, slightly dated now New Yorker piece that followed her around because this writer is watching her 
operate like a boss. I mean, telling people exactly what she wants and how she wants it, but going about it in a very, very like adorable Taylor Swift fashion, even to the point where she talks about how she was so disillusioned by the typical format of the artist fan meet and greet of like, okay, you've seen the show and now you all stand in line and you get a VIP bracelet because you paid a million dollars to see me and you come backstage and we take pictures and you go home. Instead, she had her mom and her, some of the other members of her team help pick out individual members of the audience who looked like these are the girls who are absolutely going crazy for Taylor Swift and love her. We're going to handpick them to come backstage and then they like set up in this like this super decorated tent and she hangs out and she looks at their posters and it's more just like with the rest of the Taylor Swift brand image thing. It's very much more like a, hey, we're buddies. We're hanging out. Welcome to my life. When really, you know, they're not in her life. They're in a tent backstage hanging out on some really cushy pillows. But she has definitely crafted this whole process in such a way that allows these young girls to feel like I can really connect with her. She writes about boys. I like boys. I feel sad, too, sometimes. And they really feel like because she might tweet back at them or she might retweet a picture of them holding up the Polaroids that came with the hard copy of 1989, that they have a connection to this superstar. Well, what do we take away, though, from the superstar? Because you could also, and I'm going to play like crotchety feminists in the corner for a minute and say, but you could argue that she is ultimately promoting heteronormative culture and she's, you know, traditionally like beautiful girl. She's quite thin. Girls want to look like her. Perhaps they judge their bodies because of her. So are we really... Should we really just, you know, do we love this so much? Whereas someone like Lord is a bit more subversive. Yes, she's still white, but she is a little bit darker and a little more. I mean, she's just a little more goth in general. But, um, you know what I mean? So what mm-hmm. do we how do we reconcile that kind of stuff? I mean, it's the same kind of question that we circled around to at the end of our episode on Beyonce of, well, how do we reconcile like her sexy, the sexiness of her image and the her personal feminist beliefs. Well, I think I think Taylor Swift and Beyonce both have a a certain power. And I mean, I obviously think that they exercise that power differently and they obviously look different. Um, But I think what we're seeing with both of these pop stars is that they are two young women who have really, really taken control of their careers and their image and who are speaking up for their art and sometimes for other women. And so if you can get uh, an 11-year-old girl to hear that message, I think that's great. Do we need more diversity in our feminist spokespeople? Absolutely. I would never turn that down. However, working within the framework that we have, I think it's pretty neat that you have someone like a Beyonce or like a Taylor Swift in this case, speaking up for taking charge of your career, taking charge of your life, being very vocal about the fact that, hey, all these naysayers who were like, don't do 1989 this way, you know, they ended up being wrong and I ended up being right. I think that's a great message for 
anyone to hear. And the fact that we sort of got to watch her grow up, um, we literally got to watch her grow up, but the fact that we got to watch her sort of, quote unquote, come of age into the idea of feminism is actually really neat because I think that, you know, Taylor Swift herself talked about how scary the idea and the word feminism was to her as a younger woman. And I think that there are a lot of plenty of people out there, not just young girls who can identify with that idea that feminism is scary and it's dirty and we don't like it. And it means that you hate men or you hate whatever. Um, They define it in a negative way instead of a positive way. And so the fact that we can watch her go through this and come to this realization means that maybe just maybe some of her fans will come along on that same train with her. I completely agree. And I also think, too, that. Where we are pop culturally is as much reflective in her fans as it is in her naysayers, because this was something that Tavi Gevinson was talking to Flavorwire about. She was the question was, why do you think some people dislike Swift so much? Because it's clear why so many girls in particular love her. That's easy to understand. But Gevinson said, some of it is just a standard, inevitable, famous pop star part. She has an enviable life. But I think more of it comes from people who really hate that it could be more complicated than that. That they can't just dismiss it as stupid teeny bopper music because critics take her seriously. And she's proven herself to be so much more than a passing fad. That's when they try to invalidate the parts of her which are impressive or even somewhat subversive. Her songs and feelings are based on lies because she's a crazy, manipulative serial dater. The unique amount of control she has over her brand is exploitative of her loyal fans. And she goes on to say, I've seen articles that use Swift as the focal point for discussions on everything from classism to gender. Can you think of another current pop star that stirs up so much debate and discussion? And I mean, probably Beyonce. Well, and she mentions Beyonce. She was like, yeah, there's Beyonce, but really... You know, Swift and Beyonce are probably tied for first in that regard. Mm -hmm. And this is going to lead us into our next episode in which we're going to shift our focus more to the Swifties end of thing and talk about how probably a lot of uh, and it's not going to be focused on Taylor Swift, but probably a lot of her criticism stems from her fan base and the fact that it is teenage girls, tween age and teenage girls who adore her the most. And a lot of times, if that's the case, you are dismissed. Mm -hmm. So with that, shall we ask for people's thoughts? Totally. What do you think about Taylor Swift? I'm sure that there are T-Swizzle fans and T-Swizzle haters listening. So we want to hear your thoughts. Let us know what you think about her. And if she is important particularly in terms of her influence on younger girls. And do you think that that's a good thing or a bad thing? Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. You can also tweet us at Podcast. We'd love to hear your thoughts. And we've got a couple of letters to share with you when we come right back from a quick break. And now, back to the show. Well, speaking of Taylor Swift, we heard from a lot of women in music in response to our episode a little while back on women in indie rock. And Emma wrote to say, I really loved your interview with Sarah Martin from Bell and Sebastian. I've loved Bell and Sebastian for years and was really excited to hear Sarah talk about being a woman in indie. I just wanted to share my comparatively limited experience. I'm 16 and for the past year have been in a fairly serious giggling band under the name of Spastic Fits. Love the name, Emma. We recently recorded our first EP. 
Counterintuitively, I found that being a woman in the male-dominated field of rock music has actually been an advantage. The sheer fact that it seems to be unusual to see a girl in a serious band, or in our case, two, we have a rad female bassist as well, which is even more uncommon, seems to pique people's interest and garner respect for being able to make it in a place women usually can't. Just thought I'd share. Thank you so much for the wonderful podcast. And thank you, Emma, and good luck with Aspastic Fits. All right. Well, I've got a letter here from Alicia. She says, I can totally relate to the only girl in the band episode, as I am indeed the only girl in my band. We're called the WAG, and we've been together for over 16 years. Here's a part where being the only girl comes into it. Whenever we open for a big act, we like to take a photo with them. Usually the press are there also taking photos of us in the national act. Sometimes the newspaper will only print a portion of the photo. My bandmates have learned over the years, if you want to be in the photo, make sure you stand next to Alicia because they will always print the portion of the photo that has the girl in it. For the first 13 years, when we were playing full electric gigs all over the place, the band dynamics were such that it was truly a democracy, with each person getting an equal vote. Everyone was expected to carry their own weight and be each other's roadies. Yes, even me, the small skinny girl. And I did it with pride. No man was going to carry more than I did. Being the only girl in the band can draw attention. When we're playing a bar with three other bands and we're the only band with a girl, it's advantageous because for some reason people just don't expect girls to be great rock and roll musicians. So I like to shock them. Usually people will ask me, oh, are you the singer? To which I reply, yes, as are the bassist and the guitarist. When one of us is singing lead, the other two are singing harmonies and backup. Most bands don't have either. As well as being one of the singers, I'm also the keyboardist and percussionist, and on some songs I play guitar or flute. They always assume that I'm quote-unquote just a singer because I'm female. I then have the pleasure of telling them I'm the only one in my band with a degree in music. Anyway, we're not on the same level as Belle and Sebastian, but having been doing this for over 16 years, I can completely relate to the episode and thoroughly enjoy it. So thank you, Alicia, and good luck with your music. And thanks to everybody who's written in to us. MomStuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. And for links to all of our social media, as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts, including this one with all of our sources, in case you want to learn more about Taylor Swift, head on over to our website. It's StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Oh,